0: Good evening. And welcome to everyone. Esteemed rabbis, members of the board of directors of Kohelet Yeshiva, Kohelet Foundation generous sponsors, faculty, parents, community members, and students. It is indeed a joy To welcome this evening our honored guests, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, his esteemed wife, Lady Elaine Sachs, Joanna, who we've gotten to know as well, the chief of staff of Rabbi Sachs' office. Wow. How honored are we as a community? At this point, there's the sense that you're part of the Kohelet community, part of the Kohelet family, I think, in, in so many ways. In particular, we'd like to welcome and recognize this evening Ms. Susanna Lax Adler, who is the board chair of the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia. So, I want to welcome Susanna. But uh, it's an honor to have you here with us this evening. Just this past week, we had the opportunity to read Parshat Vaera, and in this section of the Torah, we read. Of the four languages of redemption, the Arbal, the Shonot, Shel, ge'ulah. And it's fascinating. We know that the rabbis place great stock in this notion, in these four formulations the Hotseiti, the Hitzalti, the Ga'alti, the four different Hebrew terms that attempt to capture the nature, the depth of the relationship between God and the Jewish people on the journey toward redemption. And the rabbis went even further. Suggested the rabbis that these four formulations are nothing less than the basis for the four cups of wine that we drink on the night of the Seder. Of such importance, such practical significance are these four formulations. And yet, if we take a look at the traditional source for this notion For this idea that there are four different formulations of redemption, we take a look at the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, and the rabbis teach us. They don't say what's popularly cited. Normally, we say "Arba l'Shonot Shel four formulations, languages, ways of speaking about redemption. But instead, in the Yerushalmi, it actually says "Arba." Four redemptions. What does that mean? What do the rabbis have in mind here? Four redemptions. Look at the Seder night. I'm only seeing one redemption. We know the story of the Exodus. We're quite familiar with the narrative. Four redemptions? What does it mean? But I think there's something profound that's happening here. I think the rabbis are suggesting that yes, there were over the course of the jews relationship with God ever evolving relationship with the bno Olam, with the master of the universe, different stages, different parts of the process of developing and cultivating the relationship between God and his people, not just for formulations but for different events, different moments, different facets of a relationship that was being deepened that was being Developed through God and his people, says the Torah, say the rabbis' Arba for redemptions. It was rich, it was layered, it was textured. There was a depth to the relationship between God and his people. And I think it's so appropriate, so fitting this evening as we welcome back Rabbi Lord Sachs. For some of us, our first time to learn with him in person, for others of us, right here at Kohelet Yeshiva, opportunity number four. Arba And each visit, each opportunity to interact with Rabbi Sachs as the community has meant, a different texture, a different facet of a developing and deepening relationship, a chance to connect on so many different levels at so many different programs and events. It might have been an armchair conversation. It might be an opportunity to ask some questions and to explore together with Rabbi Sachs. It might be a Shabbat Shel Ruach, a full Shabbat coming together to celebrate together with Rabbi Lord Sachs so many facets, so many opportunities, so many levels of connection. And yet it's not just for the community, it's above all for our students as well. And it's not just their chance to interact with Rabbi Sachs now for all those years running, Some students, it was their first opportunity just this morning, including our high school and their middle school students, but also for others, upwards, of four opportunities, four chances to interact, to establish, deepen that relationship. At this point, Rabbi Sachs, it's not just students hearing from you on a periodic basis. They're learning your ideas. They're talking about it after you come What did he say about this? And how does that connect to what I learned in my Chumash class about Rabbi Sachs' ideas? Your words, your presence, is a living part of our students' experience here at Kohela Yeshiva. And for that, we are so deeply grateful. And on that note, we are fortunate to have a student to represent us this evening, an outstanding exemplar of exactly the values that Rabbi Sachs himself embodies and that Kohela Yeshiva so proudly represents at this point, I'd like to call upon our junior, 11th grade student, Noah at Franklin, to directly introduce Rabbi Sachs this evening. Thank you so much and enjoy.
1: Thank you so much, Rabbi Senensky. I was first introduced to Rabbi Sachs in my Shabbat table when my mom regularly discussed his commentary. So it was only natural that When looking for inspiration for a Kohelet Yeshiva Tanakh project, I turned to his inspiration first. I recall being drawn to his book, Lessons in Leadership, in which he has a discussion on parashat Bo. Rabbi Sachs writes on the unique vision of Moshe Rabbeinu that set him apart as a leader. Rather than focus on the newfound freedom the Jewish people were presently experiencing, Moshe lays the foundations for the future and discusses the duty to educate children. This set the Jews apart from surrounding nations. Unlike the Egyptians, who built the pyramids, and the Romans, who later built the Colosseum, we built places of education and an educational framework. As a result, while there are no ancient Egyptians or Romans to take pride in the grandeur of their architecture, we flourish and thrive. We have no grand monuments to the scale of the pyramids and have faced repeated expulsion. Yet we have never collapsed as these mighty empires have. Instead of buildings, we codified our foundational texts that would bind Jews together irrespective of circumstance or geography. Our foundations are not in architecture, but in the stories and values we uphold and transmit. I found Rabbi Sachs' commentary to be especially meaningful to me as a teenager in a modern Orthodox school. Our daily, weekly, and annual rhythms of Jewish practice, and the values we uphold here at Kohelet are most importantly expressed in our relationships with God and with our community. Here, I have experienced the deep respect for learning and intellectual fearlessness that Rabbi Sachs writes of. It is for this reason that Rabbi Sachs is such a powerful advocate for an exemplar of this kind of education, which students of all ages receive here at Kohelet Yeshiva that it is my great honor to introduce Rabbi Sachs this evening. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs is a global religious leader, philosopher, and moral voice for our time. After serving as chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth for 22 years, he served as professor of Jewish thought at Yeshiva University and New York University. He also served as professor of law, ethics, and Bible at King's College London. Rabbi Sachs holds 16 honorary degrees, and was knighted by the Queen of England in 2008. He also won the Templeton Prize for his achievements as a global spiritual leader. Rabbi Sachs is a frequent contributor to the radio, television, and press around the world. He is the author of over 30 books, many of which have won literary awards. Here at Kohelet, we frequently turn to and rely upon the teachings in his books. Rabbi Sachs has published commentaries to the daily sidor, in addition to commentaries to the holiday machzorim and Pesach Haggadah. The Magrman Anit Yitfilah series for youth features Rabbi Sachs's translations and is used here at Kohelet Daily. Rabbi Sachs is currently writing a commentary for the forthcoming Magroman Chumash to be published by Koran. This revolutionary new commentary will be available for schools and shuls throughout the world. In 1970, Rabbi Sachs married now Lady Elaine, who is here with us today. They have three children Joshua, Dina, and Gila, as well as several grandchildren. It is my great honor and privilege to welcome and introduce Rabbi Sachs this evening to speak on the topic Facing the Future Together Without Fear.
2: Happy is the people that has people like Noah and like so many, indeed all of your other children. Wow, that is the face of the Jewish future and it is a future of which we can be proud. Kohelet really is a special school and all of you who have a part in it Parents, teachers, governors, rabbanim all of you are part of something that you really should understand is special. I know everyone thinks their school is special, but as somebody who travels around the Jewish world, I think the extent to which you have embraced the most challenging and the most contemporary of teaching methods the most demanding of intellectual integrity, that ability to take our Jewish values in the contemporary world and allow those values to challenge some of the false values of the contemporary world, the prophetic imperative that we have been summoned to in every generation. We are the iconoclasts who challenge the idols of the age, whatever the idols and whatever the age. And you really have done something special here. I want you to know this. And there is that lovely line. You remember we say, call them not your children, but your builders. And I think, Noah, that's really what, what Hazel was saying, what I was trying to say, that other cultures built buildings, but we built builders people who in themselves and by their personal example would have an influence and be a blessing to all those whose lives they touched and as such be Hashem's ambassadors in the world. You have such ambassadors in the school and I salute all of you. Thank you. Um, Friends, um, I was asked the question how to face the future without fear which is the question I dealt with in my TED lecture, but you can see the TED lecture. The only thing I claim credit for in my TED lecture is that they give you 18 minutes, and I am the only person who ever cut it down to 12. (laughs) Rabbis are not known to speak briefly. I always say this, you know, in America, the word momentarily means soon. But in England, the word momentarily means briefly. And that's why I was so puzzled when everyone began to introduce me in America by saying, Rabbi Sachs will speak momentarily. (laughs) To which I replied, rabbis never speak momentarily. At any rate, thank you for being such a great school. And it's just a privilege to once in a while be part of what you do. So let me tell you what I think we need to give our children. And I want to uh, teach you tonight just one word. I don't know if you know the word already. If you don't, don't worry. I'm going to explain it to you. The word is anti-fragile. Does anyone, have you come across this word? I'm going to explain it to you. But I want to begin with a little scene that's kind of etched in my memory. <laughs> Some years ago, I was standing addressing a chosna kala color under the chuppah, and I gave them a little speech. I said, we know so much today. We look up at the sky and we see a universe of a hundred billion galaxies each of a hundred billion stars. We look down and we see within the human body a hundred trillion cells, each of which contains a nucleus, each of which contains a double copy of the human genome, 3.1 billion letters of a genetic code which, if transcribed, would fill a library larger than the one you have in this room. We seem to know everything, but there remains one undiscovered country. It is called the future. We may know everything else, but there is one thing we will never know, what tomorrow may bring. That is what I said under the chuppah. Years later, the mother of the color said, do you remember that sermon you gave to my daughter under the chuppah? I said, yes. She said, do you remember what day it was? And I said, no, what day was it? said it was the day before 9-11, and that defines the world we live in, in the 21st century. We live in a world that is massively unpredictable, and that has a huge effect on the well-being and happiness of our children. I don't know how you find it in the States. But in Britain, when researchers go and ask young people what do they feel about the future, the commonest words they come up with are anxiety, insecurity, and fear. Because our world has become so unpredictable, people can get used to almost anything. People can get used to poverty, to disease, to war. There is one thing people can never get used to, which is constant and relentless change. We are not made to deal with that, and the result is that we live in a very strange world. Two years ago, who could predict the current state of American politics or British politics for that matter? Twenty years ago, if you asked what would be the biggest challenge would any of, anyone have said radical Islam? 20 years ago, would you have, if asked, what are 20 years from now, what are our kids going to be addicted to? Would anyone have said a phone? <laughs> you know, this kind of thing just didn't come up. And we, and we have, you know, these, these apps Just one app will change the world. I mean, I must say, my favorite app of all time, of course, was a little Jewish invention, an Israeli invention, actually, called Waze. You may know it better as Google Maps, because Google bought Waze. But I think that is the greatest contribution to Shalom Baez. (laughs) Do you know how many marriages fell apart? Because he said... Why didn't you look it up? And she said, "Why didn't you ask for directions?" Waze has got rid of all of that shalom by his reign. Or you take another Jewish invention. You know, a nice Jewish boy goes to Harvard, has a row with his girlfriend, goes away and invents Facebook. And Facebook this year is celebrating its bar mitzvah. It is 13 years old, and it, it connects to two billion people. No, nothing ever connected with two billion people before, and in an astonishingly brief space of time. So, if the world is changing faster than ever, and if the pace of change is accelerating every single year, how do we deal with this? Well, there was a, uh, an America, a Lebanese American actually called Nicholas Taleb. Wrote a very important book about this called The Black Swan. It actually came out at the time of the financial crash and became a huge bestseller because that was another thing that only a few people had predicted. And of course, his point in Black Swan is that people always make the mistake of making firm predictions on the basis of what's been going on until now. And so since everyone had seen white swans and nobody had ever seen a black swan, you assume if it's a swan, it must be white until people first traveled to Australia and found black swans. It is what uh, Bertrand Russell called the, uh, the science of the, uh, forgive me because I'm not an American, the Thanksgiving turkey. Am I, am I right here? The turkey being a good scientist works out that every single day the farmer comes along and feeds it and it's very nice. And infers that's gonna happen every day until along comes Thanksgiving. And so <laughs> the future is Thanksgiving for a ta- it's a black swan. We never factor in to our calculations, the unpredictable. And that was a key piece of the jigsaw puzzle. What Donald Rumsfeld used to call the unknown unknowns. Now, he didn't stop with that book because having posed the problem for the next few years, he asked just the question that I'm asking. How should we design systems that can cope with the unpredictable? And he said something very interesting. He said, when sudden pressure is applied to something and it breaks, we call that fragile. What is the opposite of fragile? He said, most people, when asked that question, answer strong, robust, resilient. And he said, no, that's not the opposite. That's the negation, right? If you say, what's the opposite of white? It's not not white, which could be blue or green or pink. The opposite of white is black. It's not, not just not white. So he said the opposite of fragile is not resilient, which is just the negation of fragile. The opposite is anti-fragile. And that is the word I want to teach you. Anti- something that's resilient doesn't break when you hit it. But something which is anti-fragile actually becomes stronger when you If you can design systems that are anti-fragile, they will not merely survive through unpredictable challenges. They will grow stronger. And that is a fascinating concept. Now, that concept was coined in the year 2012, which is when he brought the book out. What is really interesting is that although the concept is only six years old, it was first stated in the Torah and we read it to Shabbatot again. Do you remember what it says? The Israelites suffer something completely unpredictable. Bayakamela Hadash, a new king arises over Egypt, and he starts persecuting the people. And then we read these words Kaashe Yanu Oto Kenir The more they afflicted them, the stronger they grew and the more they spread. That is the first reference in all literature to anti-fragility. And it's fascinating because when you stop and think about it, what is remarkable about Jewish history is, yes, we are the ultimate experiences of the unpredictable. I mean, who could see, foresee, Spain turning against the Jews, for instance, the way it did, or Germany turning against the Jews the way it did, and so on. We have constantly faced the unpredictable, and we have constantly survived tragedies that would have put an end to any less resilient people. But the thing is that it's not that we survived those traumas. We actually grew stronger each time Every single bad thing that happened in Jewish history proved to be the springboard for some new extraordinary adventure in the Jewish spirit and in Jewish creativity. Look at what happened after Hurban Bait Rishon. You know, after the Jews stopped weeping. Al-Naharot Bavel, you know, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They then came up with a rediscovery of Torah at the heart of the nation, which is what Ezra and Nehemiah brought from Babylon to Israel when they they returned. And from then on, the whole structural foundations of Judaism as a people of learning happened, and it was born in the Babylonian exile. What happened after the destruction of the second temple? The entire rabbinic literature of Midrash, Mid- Mishnah, and Gemara was a response to Chorban Bayt and the dislocations it created. Christianity, the encounter with medieval Christianity, led to the Mefarshim, led to the entire uh, Rashi, etc., school of biblical exegesis. The encounter with Islam. And the Neoplatonic and Neo-Aristotelian Islamic philosophers led to Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed and the entire history of Jewish philosophy. The Spanish expulsion led, within a century, to the gathering of Jews in Safat and those extraordinary poets of Lekhadoi and uh, Yedid Nefesh of Shlomo Alkabetz and Eliezer Azikri. The Birth of anti-Semitism in Europe, racial anti-Semitism, led to the Zionist movement. A mere three years after standing eyeball to eyeball with the angel of death at Auschwitz, the Jewish people got up and said, Lo Amut ki in pronouncing the State of Israel and the collective national rebirth of Am Yisrael, Bimadinat Yisrael. And every single thing that is thrown against Israel, is somehow turned into some incentive to creativity. There's a wave of terror in 2002, the suicide bombers. Israel becomes the world expert in dealing with terror, which is now faced by every country in the world. They throw missiles. Israel invents Iron Dome, which the Saudi Arabians want to borrow, please. (laughs) Proving that Hashem has a sense of humor. They dig tunnels. Israel finds a way of detecting tunnels. You name it. Every single thing that they throw against the state of Israel, every single thing that they have thrown against the Jewish people, the Jewish people has responded to that challenge the way Jacob responded to the angel by saying, I will not let you go until you bless me until out of this horrible encounter life threatening encounter we somehow extract a blessing yes we limp like jacob limped but we extract a bit and therefore jews have this unique ability no other nation has developed it and no other nation particularly is needed to develop it but we may not be the biggest people in the world but we are far and away the most anti And that is why this is the best gift we can give our children. Not because Judaism is old, but because it is young. Not because it represents the world of yesterday, but because it represents the single best response to the world of tomorrow. And I mean that in all seriousness. I am concerned at the way young people today throughout the West are being shaken by this ever-changing and ever-accelerating world. And we need to give our children the gift of anti-fragility. Where did it come from? What does it analyze into? First of all, and I want to give you seven dimensions that together create this anti-fragility. The first thing is family if you are going to survive any major shock to the system, you need to be surrounded by a loving and caring family. It, I, I have to tell you, I couldn't have survived one day of the Chief Rabinette without being married to the Chief my I really <laughs> you know, when they made me a, a, a lord, I said I'm delighted to have Her Majesty's confirmation that I married a lady, but I never doubted it for one moment. It is surely the case. I was just mentioning to Rabbi Paul <laughs> that I had the privilege a couple of years ago delivering the opening keynote of a, com- of a seminar at the Vatican introduced with the opening address by the Pope and then I gave the opening keynote. It is not often a Rav gets asked to, uh, <laughs> to teach the Cardinals in the Vatican a lesson but there is one thing on which even catholics have to admit that a rabbi knows better than a pope and that is marriage <laughs> so you know and and that is that is us you know perastichlelo or long something we say every time we put on challah no religion ever saw out the bond between us and God like a marriage. That, uh, that, 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 may God rejoice in him, like a, in you, like a bridegroom in his bride. I mean, the, the language of the prophets is saturated with the language of marriage. We hold marriage to be holy and spiritual. And in a way that almost no one else does. There was a really sad book, actually, Uh, there's an Israeli, an American Israeli called Yossi Klein Halevi, who early in this whole Balagan wrote a book called At the the Entrance of Paradise or some such thing. And he was going around Israel in around 2002, 2003, looking for signals of hope. Could he find non-Israelis, non-Jews, who really liked Israelis and Jews and saw a future of peace. And it's a very sad book, because try though he does, he doesn't really come up with anything. But he does come up with one little moment that me shone, uh, to me shone with absolute radiance. And this was the, 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 the mother superior of a convent of nuns in Israel who said, we often get visited by Draelis. To see what we get up to, secular Israelis. And she said, the way she said, the whole world needs to see how Jewish parents care for their children with such tenderness. She said the following: Every Jewish child has two mothers, because even a Jewish father, you know, is gentle in a way that perhaps we don't see. and I thought this was wonderful. This was the one moment where somebody who was not Jewish said, here is something in which Jews can teach the world. And I think it is that strength of Jewish families that has been part of our anti-fragility all along. That together with every Jewish parent's belief that my child is the Mashiach. <laughs> I mean, my favorite Jewish announcement, you know, in the Jewish newspaper announcing, to Mr. and Mrs. Max Goldberg, the birth of a son, Dr. David Goldberg. (laughs) So, it's number one, the strength of the Jewish family, which the whole world seeks to learn from us. Number two, the sheer strength of Jewish community, which is unbelievable. Always, you know, as Chief Rambo, or indeed all of you know, There are occasions when families go through extraordinary moments of crisis and grief. And you know at that point that it is the coming together of the community that takes people through this. And it is really extraordinary. Um, Already seven years ago, A British charity did some research into social media and this came up with the finding that the average Brit, this is in 2011, has 237 Facebook friends. When asked on how many could you rely if you needed help, the average answer was two. A quarter said one and an eighth said none. And you will know the difference between the friends you have in shul. And the friends you just have on social media. I will never forget a moment again in 2011 when a young American family, who was a member of our community in St. John's Wood in London, got up and said goodbye to the community. And the story was this that in 2008, three years earlier, they'd come, in August of 2008, this young family from New York with three young kids, because the father of the family had just been given this tremendous promotion, head of Lehman Brothers Europe. Within less than a month, there was no Lehman Brothers. Now what do you do when you've come to a new country with a young family, and everything you've come to for has disappeared? Three years later, he got up in the shul as he and his family were about to return to New York, and he made this incredibly moving, about how supportive the community had been, and how he and his family could not have survived without it. And that is what you see in a community. You know how the community helps heal the brokenhearted and ministers to the wounds. And the stronger the crisis, the stronger the community becomes. That is what makes communities anti fragile. The third is this even wider community, this idea of that all Jews everywhere abound in a bond of collective responsibility. I was doing a television program for the BBC about the end of the NATO campaign in Kosovo in 1999. You couldn't get into Kosovo at the time, so they flew me in on an RAF on a Royal Air Force uh, plane, And you know, I used to make before Rosh Hashanah a a television program, half an hour television program, as a message to the nation. So I had to talk about Rosh Hashanah in a way that made sense to a public, 99.5% of whom weren't Jewish, most of whom weren't religious. So we had to think of inventive things. And you know, uh, I stood in the middle of this still strewn with rubble the central square in Pristina amidst all the bomb damage and so on. And I spoke about here you see the power of one word to change the world, the word forgiveness. If the uh, uh, Serbs and Croats and Kosovo and Albanians can forgive one another, they have a future. If not, they will be replaying the Battle of Kosovo of 1389 until the end of time but the head of the NATO forces welcomed me and said, we need to thank you, your people for helping us to restore order in Pristina. And I said, how? And he said, well, you know, there were 300,000 Muslims who had to flee, went to Macedonia, and they were just coming back. And he said, the sign that things have returned to normal is when the schools open on time. Your people have made sure the schools open on time. This is what the head of the NATO forces, General Sir Michael Jackson, told me. As Soon as I came out, I was only there for a day, so I wasn't able to go and find out what the story was, but I asked around how many Jews in Pristina, and the answer was nine. I'm thinking, how are nine Jews running the education system of Pristina? And then I thought, yeah, what a silly question. Hashem created the Jewish people, and he created smartphones. And you so say you get on the phone to the joint, and you get on the phone to your and Chaim Perry and all the Israelis, and all of a sudden, there may be only be nine Jews in Pristina, but the whole Jewish people is there to help when help is needed. And that's what happened. They came from America and from Israel, and they ran the schools and brought back order to Pristina. Do you know what that means? That is anti-fragility when you can call on an entire people to come and to help you through whatever crisis. And this, of course, is not just Jews helping Jews, it's Jews helping non-Jews. I mean, ask yourself today, how many American Christians, and this concerns me, are out there battling for the Christians that are being massacred throughout the Middle East? We would have rescued Had they been Jews, we would have rescued them straight away. They're being... In 2014, they were being butchered and crucified and beheaded in Mosul, one of the oldest. And nobody's doing anything. How many of the ultra-rich Gulf oil states have come to the aid of the three-plus million Syrians who have been turned into refugees? 20,000 Christians were rescued from Syria. At whose initiative? The late Lord Weidenfeld, a Jewish member of the House of Lords, who said, Christians help Jews in the Holocaust, we are going to help Christians from Syria. We don't realize, it's not that the world is bad and we're good, but this concept of kol Yisraeli revinzimzim, that we are all responsible for one another, is not one that is widely shared outside of our community. And that helps to make us anti-fragile. Then, of course, element four is Shabbat. I have to say, we were talking, I don't know, some of you, we were having dinner together. We were talking about translating the Chumash, because I have, for David, and David has high standards, so we're not just doing a commentary, we're doing a new translation as well. And I have to tell you, the first time the Chumash was ever translated was in the days of Ptolemy II, and the Gemara in Megillah says when the rabbis translated the Torah into Greek, they deliberately mistranslated certain verses. And one of the verses they deliberately translated was God finished creation on the seventh day. What did they translate that into in Greek? And God finished creation on the sixth day. That's what the Gemara says. What was it that the Greeks couldn't understand in the verse, and God finished completed creation on the seventh day? What they couldn't understand was rest is itself creative That is what they couldn't understand. And we now know, well, we always knew, because if you read the Greek writers, that one of the things they never understood on Shabbat about was Shabbat. They wrote, the Jews keep Shabbat because they're lazy. They couldn't work out there's something creative about rest. And you know what happens? What happens to individuals who don't have a Shabbos happen to whole civilizations. You suffer from burnout. Jews never suffered from burnout because we always had Shabbat. Shabbat is being rediscovered by the most unusual people. All the Jews in Silicon Valley I get messages from so many of them telling me, Rabbi Sachs, these social media are ruining our kids. They're on them all the time. They're bad for their attention spans. They're bad for their social skills. They no longer make eye contact. Even when we're all sitting down having a meal together, they're all texting away under the table. And we decided, we and our three children decided, we are going to have a screen-free day because that's the only way we'll recover our values. She said, what you'll love is the name we've given it. We've decided to call it Shabbos. (laughs) Shabbos has become the digital detox. That's what it's become. And Shabbos allows us to do the most important thing you have to do if you want to be anti-fragile, which is never allow yourself to be exhausted, physically or emotionally. So many of our kids today are suffering from sleep deprivation. Hashem invented sermons to cure sleep deprivation. (laughs) So on Shabbat, Shabbat Vayina Fash, we develop that extra so, that refreshing, that makes us anti-fragile. Fifth, there's one thing we have to do. When one app can come along and change an entire industry, the way Uber did, or the way Airbnb did, or uh, the way that is it Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley now have twenty percent of their uh, investment advisors replaced by uh, by compute by algorithm when you don't know whether your whole profession, your whole career is suddenly going to disappear. You have to be trained for lifelong learning. And if there's one thing Jews know more than any other people, it is lifelong learning. I uh, remember um, one very difficult moment when I was rushed into hospital immediately for a life-saving operation. And I almost, it was so fast, I really didn't know what was happening. And as I was just coming out of the anesthetic, I hear a, a knock on, my, on the door of my hospital room. And uh, I say, come in very weakly. And an 8 year old guy comes in with a big masechet of uh, volume of the Talmud under his arm. He's got a big smile on his face and he says, Rabbi Sachs, I heard you were here. Great. We can learn Gomorrah together. I'm dying and he wants a (laughs) Gomorrah. That is lifelong learning. You know, the biggest problem today with kids on social media is short attention span. I have to tell you, Bill Gates, the late Steve Jobs, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, have some of the longest attention spans ever. These are people who thought hard and thought long. And I'm sure you know that there's one thing that Steve Jobs would not allow his kids to have, which was an iPhone or an iPad. So we have to teach our kids long attention spans. There is no longer longer attention span in the world than the Duff Yomi. Just think of one thought for seven years. You know, Jews are committed to lifelong learning, and that keeps us mobile, light on our feet, mentally and physically. That's the fifth element. The sixth element, straightforwardly, is, uh, I was explaining to the kids this morning, what the Warren Buffett School of Investment, which says, when everyone's buying, sell, when everyone's selling, buy. When everyone is walking in one direction, you walk in the other. That contrarian ability, which all great people have, is the Jewish ability, par excellence. The climax, the summit of civilization in the days of Avram, was Mesopotamia. That's where everyone wants to be. Avram leaves. The highest civilization in the days of Moses was the Egypt of Ramses II. Everyone wants to go, Moses wants to leave. When all the world is going one way, Jews are going the other way. We are the arch-contrarians. And that means we are liberated from the thing that is devastating to whole civilizations, which is following the crowd. We don't follow the crowd, and that's what made Jews, even highly secularized Jews, the great pioneers of new directions, Einstein, Freud, Durkheim, Levi-Strauss, you name it, everyone. Um, and Jews have, have, have had that contrarian gift. And a contrarian is somebody who can serve the wave of change. And that is the sixth element of anti-fragility. And then finally, my favorite example. Because the seventh thing is emuna, is faith. I, uh, Elaine and I and Joanna, had this enormous zuchut this morning of visiting one of my heroes. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Aaron T. Beck. Aaron Beck, as you know, was the co-founder of the most successful form of psychotherapy in the world today, cognitive behavioral therapy. Kinane Ohara is 96 years old, but still incredibly crisp and one young in his mind. And um, the reason we visited him, I mean, we've met him before here in Philadelphia, but he just happened to be told by some people that I referred to him in my covenant and conversation a few weeks ago. I spoke about Joseph as the world's first Cognitive Behavioral Therapist. (laughs) Because if anyone in his life encountered black swans, unexpected and severe reversals of fortune, it was Joseph. You know, there he is, favored son, and all of a sudden sold as a slave. There he is winning his master's favor, and all of a sudden his master's wife accuses him of rape. There he is, flourishing in the present, interpreting the dreams of pharaoh 's chief butler and then the butler goes and forgets him, and seemingly his last chance of freedom is lost and then all of a sudden, Mikathaim Yamim he goes from zero to hero in a single hour and you think, how did he have this robustness this anti-fragility, not merely to survive all these reversals of fortune, but to thrive through them all. And the answer is absolutely explicit. When he first reveals himself to his brothers, he says, I <laughs> don't think it was you who sent me here. It was God. At the end, in five chapters on, after Yaakov has died and they're worried he'll take Revenge, he says, no. You intended harm against me, but God intended it for good. This is the first instance in literature of somebody reframing. That is what cognitive behavioral therapy is all about. All these things that seem to be real blows of cruel fate are actually all part of some plan which has been written by God. He's done the script. You know, the one better than script by Aaron Sorkin, script by Agadosh Baruch. And he's written the script, and I trust Hashem that he is doing all this for a reason, and I'm here in order to do what he wants me to do. And that gives him not only resilience, but this ability to take this awful situation and turn it into blessing. Not merely to be able to save his family, but to save a whole region from famine and starvation. That is resilience, that is anti-fragility. So those are the seven elements from family, community, to contrarianism, lifelong learning, and the ability to reframe if you have true faith that Hashem is writing the script of which we happen to be the key character, then we are giving our children strengths that will allow them not merely to survive with resilience through all the changes that this unknown and turbulent century holds in store for us, but to become stronger at every point. There are times in human history when not much changes and you don't need those special strengths. But now is not one of them. We have been tested time and again, more often than any other people, and we came through with our head high, and we were able to say in the words of our prayer, Other civilizations fell. We stayed firm, and ever each time we were strengthened. Friends, that is what Kohelet is giving your children. That is what Judaism has always given its children. And our children need it now, more than ever. So I say to you and to all of us, chazak, chazak, chazek. May you be strong, may the school be strong, and may we each strengthen one another. Amen.